Okay, so uh, as you know, we've been in this, in this study uh, of Genesis for some time, and we have been looking at what we're calling a biblical anthropology, and the last portion of that that we had on our list of things to talk about was man's relationships. And of course, when you get to the end of Genesis chapter 2, you see that great passage where um, woman is brought to man, and man um, sees that this is now a suitable helper, that he makes that declaration, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Um, and you see this confirmation of the first marriage ceremony, if you will, where it says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And you just see this beginning of putting man into relationship. It starts really where um, God himself says it's not good that man should be alone. And that's where the, the narrative takes us to introduce to us this priority, this importance of man in relationship, um, that, that man was created to be in relationship, male and female uh, in relationship. And so we decided to take a little bit of a diversion, if you will, uh, to talk more fully about marriage and, and really to, to highlight this institution, this uh, cornerstone of human civilization, this this foundational uh, relationship dynamic in which culture emerges, in which faith is passed on to generation, from generation to generation, in which society is formed, in which values are passed on, this, this pivotal relationship. And so we've been talking about that at length um, for some time now, and we're going to wrap that up today, and then we're going to be stepping into Genesis chapter 3 uh, when we start back again. So. We'll finish up our time on the subject of marriage today and hopefully um, be able to kind of reflect on that as we go forward. And really, we will necessarily do that because when we get to Genesis chapter 3, it deals directly with uh, what happens uh, to the, this beautiful model of marriage um, in the Garden of Eden there. So, but we've worked through a number of passages on marriage um, to see that the Bible obviously clearly puts man and woman in an uh, equal measure, if you will, an equal function in many, many ways. Uh, we see that, that man and woman are both image bearers of God. They have that responsibility and that role and that function as bearing out the image of God on planet Earth. And there's, there are elements of dominion and, and rulership of the Earth, of God's created world, that are implied in that from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And we talked about that. Um, given these shared responsibilities to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth. Obviously, that's a shared obligation and stewardship. We also talked about how uh, man and woman, there's no distinction between the two as it relates to salvation and, and being in Christ. There's neither male nor female, Galatians says, and so there's no difference there in terms of how someone is saved or the degree to which God's redemptive work has to be brought to bear for a man versus a woman. There is neither male nor female. It goes on to say there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. So we see a variety of, of characteristics, a variety of descriptions throughout Scripture that put men and women side by side, equal in function, equal in essence, uh, equal even in role and responsibility to a certain degree. However, we also identified many, many passages of Scripture that make it clear to us that this model of marriage highlights or emphasizes some distinction of role. Okay, And so we said that the, the, the model that we see throughout Scripture is this model of male responsibility and headship, 
that is complemented by female help and submission, particularly within the context of marriage. And that this is the defining nature of the marriage relationship that we see throughout Scripture. We also uh, pointed out that this model is not something that's confined to some type of culturally constrained uh, application or culturally constrained principle. For example, it's not just something that is tied in Scripture to a, a patriarchal system that was in place either in Old Testament times or even in New Testament times, that it is, in fact, something that is, is intended to be a transcendent ideal. It is something that is applicable and appropriate and transcendent and, and, and is to be uh, um, aspired to, pursued, even redeemed for those who are in Christ. This model of, of marriage that we see, it's, it's supposed to be transcendent for all time and all peoples and all cultures. It's not something that's just part of some ancient, really uh, archaic, and even sort of somewhat wicked culture of, of the past, like, like uh, many might say in, in modern society. This is a transcendent model that, that's been held up for us in Scripture. Uh, we've been working through what I've just called eight principles uh, of marriage that we see in Scripture, um, just things that I think flow out of some of the key passages, particularly Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter chapter 3, although they're repeated some, to some degree in other passages of the New Testament that we've looked at. But these eight principles that we see pertaining to this beautiful model of marriage, this beautiful model of complementary husband and wife relationship that we see throughout Scripture. Um, I would encourage you, though, that if you want to, uh, ha to really get, um, maybe refresh your mind around a very clear sort of verse-by-verse -verse exposition, you can listen to the Ephesians study that, that Shane did uh, last year, I guess, sometime before he started Romans. Um, you can go to the audio archives on our website. It's really, I've been listening to it again here recently, and it's really, really good. So it's just a helpful sort of exposition of Ephesians chapter 5 that uh, deals with this in, in great detail. But we've, been, we've been really talking about some, some broad principles, and we had eight of them that we've been working through. So I'll just review the ones that we've covered really quickly, and then we'll get into the last couple that we're going to talk about today. The first thing we talked about was how the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are innate, meaning that, that they are wired into our DNA, that God made man and made woman a certain way. And we see that very clearly in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 in particular. And we see that God made a suitable helper for man. And we see this, this playing out throughout the New Testament as well when the New Testament passages begin to speak more specifically about these roles and responsibilities under the New Covenant, it also refers back to Genesis as the ideal model for this. And so we talked about how this, 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 this reality that these roles are innate to us does not mean that these roles have not been marred by sin. So, so it's not that, that we just naturally are going to flow into this kind of functioning in the marriage relationship. That's, of course, not, not how it works. We are, we are constantly having to struggle with sin. And in fact, um, we're going to talk a little bit about, about that as well as it relates to this, this uh, principle of, of marriage and these roles and these relationships that we have in marriage and how we are to redeem them as part of our sanctification. But the fact of the matter is, is that they are innate. And to the extent that wives pursue faithfulness to these roles, to this role in marriage, that they have, um, 
that they will they will experience a great individual and marital fulfillment, but they will also enjoy that if husbands and wives pursue this, they'll also enjoy a profound sense of purpose and contentment that uh, comes from knowing you're doing what you were made to do. And, and that can be affirmed, I think, through history. I think it can be confirmed through personal testimony of faithful uh, husbands and wives and marriages. Um, and, and it's just something that is, that is built into us, that, that there's a great satisfaction that comes from just doing what you were made to do, from fulfilling the role that God has made you to fulfill. We also talked about how the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are transcendently purposeful. That was the second principle that we looked at. They're transcendently purposeful. We had a few points under that. We said that they reflect the nature of God and the inherent submissiveness that exists in the Trinity. In other words, submission for example, if, if, the, if the wife is called to submit to her husband, this is not something that is a foreign concept to even God himself in the context of the intertrinitarian relationship. There is a relationship of, of submission in the Godhead and that as image bearers, this is part of us bearing out the image of God as husband and wife in the context of a marriage relationship. They, these roles reflect the nature and essence of Christ's relationship to his church. Of course, this is very explicit in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, more in just a little bit. But, but clearly, the, the imagery that we give, we're given there, the metaphor that we're given there, is this relationship of Christ and his relationship to the church as it defines and describes the role of man and woman in marriage. And so th there's transcendent purpose in these roles. Okay? They also manifest the genuine power of God in the lives of husbands and wives in the context of marriage. We talked about 1 Peter chapter 3 and how as a wife is submissive to her husband, even if he's not obedient to the word, that he might be won without a word by her pure conduct, by her holy conduct. And so, so God in his word has attached transcendent purpose to these roles. And it's not just something that is intended to... Um, to maintain some type of patriarchal system or some type of hierarchical approach or male domination and female subjugation. That's, that's not it at all. That clearly in scripture there's transcendent purpose in this. And we need to see that and recognize that. Um, there's also the, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 this reference for the husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. And it even talks about that we should do this so our prayers are not hindered. So again, this, this role that we play out as husbands in the context of marriage is tied to transcendent purpose, namely that our fellowship and our prayers and our intercession before God are not going to be hindered by us not living out the purpose that God has given to us in marriage. The third principle that we looked at was that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are comprehensively practical. There's a practical component here that God intends for us to understand. The fact of the matter is, is that orderly design and purpose is, is a part of God's uh, intent. We see this generally described in Genesis chapter 1 through 1, verse 26 to 28, but then we also see it more specifically described in chapter 2, verse 18, and then 22 to 24, that, that God is a God of order. And, and his, even in the creation narrative, we see that, that the way that the creation narrative flows in the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, you see this, this, this movement from disorder to order. 
And so in the context of marriage, and really in the context of human relationship and society, and, and passing on the, the, the purposes and stewardship that God has given from generation to generation, there's a practical purpose here, and, and it has to do with, with God's desire for a sense of order, a sense of design, a sense of purposeful intent. Um, there's also a purpose here uh, of order within the context of church and culture that's talked about uh, in Ephesians and in 1 Peter as well. So, so there's, a, there's a practicality to these roles and responsibilities that, that are at work here that are described in Scripture. The fourth principle that we looked at was that the, the, the complementary role, roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission require supernatural power. They require supernatural power. Um, the first reason is a very general reason, and that is that we live in a Genesis 3 world, that we are fallen. And so we kind of, in, in, in a bit of a, a laughing kind of way, I, I put it out there to the ladies to say, okay, you're supposed to submit, but look at the Yahoo next to you that you might have to be submitting to, right? We're sinful. I mean, you, you're, you're called to do something that you look at the situation, you're going, really? I mean, it just, it's just really difficult for us in our flesh to envision us doing that. Um, and e even in the context of the, the husband's responsibility to love his wife, like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, well, we look at our wives sometimes and we're like, she's not very lovable right now. I mean, I'm supposed to sacrifice for her and she's being so selfish or whatever. And so, so the idea here is that we live in a fallen world. We are fallen creatures. And so in order for us to fulfill these roles in any effective or faithful way, we, we must have God's power at work within us. But it goes even more specifically to the text of Scripture to point this out. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, for example, the context of Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 and following, that talks specifically about uh, husband and wife roles in marriage, it really gets its start up in verse 18 where it talks about being filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And it begins to describe how that would look in the context of, of, of life. And, and so you see there that, that this is just a, a carry forward of spirit-filled living. And it ends there in chapter, or it, it starts to make a turn toward the marriage relationship in chapter 22. Really in chapter 21, though, it says that it calls us to be mutually submissive to one another. And then it goes on to say, wives to your own husbands. So the context there for, the, for us is living a spirit-filled life. And that plays right into this description of the role of husband and wife in marriage. The context for 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, bounces us up to chapter 2 verse 9, which, which describes our identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we're called to live out our identity as new people, as a new chosen race, a new people of God. And that's going to play itself out in the context of our interplay and interaction in, 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 in civil society. It talks about our submission to those in authority over us in government. And then it begins to talk about our submission to, uh, really it says slaves to masters or servants to masters, but we could translate that into our context of employee to employer. And then it carries forward into wives submitting to their husbands and then the relationship of husbands uh, living with their wives in an understanding way. So the context there for us in First Peter is that this is part of us living out our identity as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, separate unto God for his, his glory. 
and the witness of the gospel. So in order for us to fulfill these roles, it absolutely requires the Spirit's enablement and us walking in who we are as God's chosen people. It requires God's power. The fifth principle we looked at was that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are not mutually exclusive in their respective functions. And that's just simply to say that while the husband has been given the primary responsibility of leadership, of headship, of responsibility for leadership in the home and in the marriage, and the wife has been given the primary function and role of help and submission and support for the husband, it does not mean that the wife never carries out any kind of leadership function or the husband never carries out any kind of submissive function or help function. It's quite the contrary, that there's a mutuality that will take place there, and the emphasis is on primary responsibility, primary function. The problem comes in when they get completely flipped. You have, it stands to reason that if you're going to be in any kind of marriage relationship, whether it's faithful, seeking to be perfectly faithful to the scriptures or just casually you know, giving a nod, to a tip of the hat to whatever God's word might say to the scriptures, there's necessarily going to be some degree of mutual submission that's going to take place no matter what. Or it, you, you don't have a relationship. Now, that's going to be in play in any kind of relationship, in particular in marriage. The problem, though, is when the roles that God has defined become completely inverted or completely reversed. Not when they are, there's a mutuality there in an in appropriate balance with the right priority of role and function for the, the husband and the wife being worked out in the marriage. We talked about how, again, Ephesians 5.21 starts with talking about mutual submission for all those who are filled with the Spirit, and then getting more defined about that in 5.22, talking about the wives. So there's this emphasis on mutual submission as a characteristic of a Spirit-filled believer and then you also have the example of Christ himself in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at that again in a little more detail in just a moment. But, but when you look at the example of Christ himself, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, submitted himself to torture and death on a cross. So our, our example, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to, to have the mind of Christ and, and have the attitude of Christ, it says, and, and his, his, very, his very nature was oriented towards service and self-sacrifice and these kinds of qualities. And then we also talked uh, about, um, about the excellent wife described in Proverbs chapter 31 and how when you read that passage, you do not see a woman who is weak or who is just standing around waiting for her husband to tell her what she needs to do next you see this picture of a very strong woman who is both carrying out her function as a submissive wife, but also leading and taking responsibility and, and doing things that would indicate strength, strength of purpose, strength of initiative. And, and yet you see this, this joy in the context of that relationship because the husband speaks well of her at the gates and the children rise up and call her blessed. And there's just this beautiful picture of a strong, godly, faithful woman in the context of marriage and home and family uh, that, that really, I think, exemplifies this, 
this principle that the roles that we're talking about are not mutually exclusive. They're held in, in appropriate balance and priority. Well, sixth, we looked at this very briefly, and I'm going to elaborate a little bit more on it today, um, is that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are not contingent upon reciprocal faithfulness. And I think that this is, should be fairly obvious, but I mean, I guess it would be contingent upon reciprocal faithfulness, meaning that, that I do what I'm supposed to do if you do what you're supposed to do. That would be appropriate, I guess. We could expect that, I guess, if you know, we're talking about middle school marriage, right? But when we're talking about grown-up adult marriage, it has nothing to do with the other person's faithfulness to their role and responsibility. It has everything to do with our submission and faithfulness to our role and responsibility as unto the Lord, out of reverence for Christ, the Scripture teaches. It makes it crystal clear to both the husband and the wife that they're to be primarily motivated by love and reverence for Christ, primarily, and secondarily, they're to be motivated by a mission and a calling to serve and sanctify the spouse. So on both fronts, both the primary purpose of reverence for Christ, of honor to Christ, submission to Christ, and also the calling to carry out that function is oriented towards serving the other. It's toward giving to the other. It's towards sacrificing on behalf of the other. And it has no contingency stated in any passage that you do this if the spouse does their part. There's none of that there. In no way are husbands and wives justified in any hesitancy or failure to fulfill their marital roles because their partner is not doing his or her part. Doing his or her part, in quotation marks. Uh, I was involved in some, I guess you might call it some informal um, counseling, if you will, um, some marriage counseling. And uh, one of, this person I was talking to made this statement and this is, this is someone who is a, is a professing believer, said this in, in the discussion about, um, about the difficulty that was going on. Um, I made this statement, I have an idea. How about if you just go home and find out whatever it is your wife wants you to do? And no matter what it is, just do it for some, some extended period, whatever it is. Even if it seems, I mean, as long as it's not, you know, asking you to disobey God. But, I mean, just completely change your thinking about this and go and find out what, what, what do you want me to do? What do, what do you, how do you want me to be? What, what do I need to do? I, that's what I want to do. And I'm, and I'm going to set about to do just that. It's trying to challenge this person at the point of their, really their perspective on their role and on the marriage in general. And the response that I got back was, it takes two to tango. That's a kind of a cliche, but that was the statement that was returned about that. It takes two to tango. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't take two to love your wife like Christ loved the church. It takes one. It doesn't take two to submit to your husband out of reverence for Christ. It just takes one. So the principle here is that the roles that we play in marriage are not contingent upon the other's faithfulness ever at all. And scripture even goes so far as to say 
For example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, even if the husband is not obedient to the word. So you have plenty of, of biblical reference to this principle, supporting this principle. The seventh principle that we're going to focus in a little bit more on today is that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission stand at the epicenter of Christian sanctification. Here's what I mean by that. I want you to think for a second. Or actually, I'm going to throw the question out. Um, thinking about all these principles that I just reviewed with you that we've been talking about over the past several weeks, and thinking about sort of the nature of the roles and responsibilities that God has given to husband and wife in the context of marriage, um, why, why would I make that a principle? Why would I make that a point of our discussion? That, that these roles and the fulfilling and, and working out of these roles in the context of marriage stand at the epicenter of Christian sanctification. Any, any thoughts? None? All right, let's think about this for a second. Let's think about it a little bit from a, maybe a bit of a theological perspective. So Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall. And really, when, and we're going to look at this shortly. We're going to get into Genesis chapter 3 shortly. But what we see taking place in the fall is really a devastating role reversal. That's what you see taking place there. A role reversal. This one who was created as a help and support to her husband is going rogue, basically, in this dialogue with the serpent. And she brings the fruit, the forbidden fruit, to the husband, and the husband doesn't lead, doesn't redirect, doesn't remind his wife of the command that God gave clearly to him in the garden before he even made Eve. And so he follows. You have this role reversal that takes place. Then you have the curse. And the curse is basically a defining start to perpetual human conflict. God says to the wife that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That's not a good forecast for marital bliss down the road. It's the beginning of what will be perpetual human conflict of all kinds. And you see this playing out as, as human history unfolds, even in the book of Genesis, where you start seeing things like polygamy. You start seeing things like adultery, pornography, prostitution. All these things begin to start playing out in Genesis as a result of the curse and this, this effect of the curse as well. Well, then you bring about marriage. You start talking about marriage. And what you have in marriage after the fall is basically a doubling of the depravity in a home. Right? So you got one sinful fallen person. And now you're going to bring another one into the mix and say, okay, you guys work it out, figure it out. You're just basically doubling the depravity in the home. Then you get to salvation. And salvation, in one sense, is a deliverance from the ultimate effects of the curse. So 
when we are saved, when we are brought into the family of God by his grace, we are saved completely and totally from the curse of the law. We were redeemed from the curse of the law, as it says in Galatians. We are made righteous in Christ. We stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. So we are made righteous, righteous in Christ currently, in real time. However, we are still in fallen flesh. And so we are not ultimately saved yet. Everybody understand that theologically, right? Then you get to sanctification. And as I said, I believe marriage stands at the epicenter of sanctification. Well, let's think about sanctification for a second. If salvation is a deliverance from the ultimate effects of the curse, sanctification is a deliverance from the daily effects of the curse. It's a working out of our salvation with fear and trembling, right? As it says in Philippians. Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now only, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now this passage that really I think is a great description or definition of the sanctification process, working out our salvation, working out the reality of us ultimately being saved from the curse of the law, redeemed from the curse of the law, working out the reality that we stand in the righteousness of Christ. We're working it out in real time. We're working out this Christ-likeness. It starts with the word therefore, which points us to the previous passages. In those previous passages we read early on in our study as sort of a, a foundational passage for all of our thinking about marriage that I think is pivotal. And it is this great image of, of the person and character and work of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, it says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Sanctification is learning to be more like Christ. It's learning to be more like Christ in humility, in self-sacrifice, in service, in submission, and in worship. That's basically a principal summary of this text. It's learning to be more like Christ in his humility, in his willing self-sacrifice, in his heart for service, in his willingness to submit, even though he was God, and in worship. 
So when you think about these complementary roles in the context of marriage, husbands and wives, we are thrust into this sanctification process. When you go to Ephesians chapter 5 and you look at that passage, what do you see there? You see this call of wives to submit to their own husbands and husbands to love their own wives. But what is the model? What does it say there? Someone read that to us, Ephesians 5, starting verse 22, and read through verse 33. Anyone have it? Verse 22. Yeah. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Verse 22. Just read down through verse 33. Okay. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ did the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So as you can see from this passage, and we've talked about this at length before, but the marriage relationship and these roles as they're described is, is about demonstrating to the world this representation of the church and Christ's relationship to his church, his body. And you see these references to sanctification, of sanctifi sanctifying his bride. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that if we are all part of the fall, if we all in our flesh have a tendency to want to reverse roles, we all seek control basically is the thing. We all desire autonomy and control in our flesh apart from Christ. And if the curse brought about this perpetual conflict, and if marriage is, is really just putting that fallen, cursed reality times two into a home and into a relationship, but if also salvation ultimately delivers us from this curse and sanctification is the working out of this daily salvation that we have, and if sanctification is characterized by us working out our salvation with fear and trembling, or more appropriately, having the mind of Christ, having his humility, demonstrating his self-sacrifice, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Self-sacrifice would be one way, for sure. This, this, these roles that we are to be playing in the context of marriage, that we are to be living out in the context of marriage, is, is central to 
individual sanctification, individual working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It stands at the epicenter of that responsibility, of that duty, of that grace that God's given us to have the mind of Christ and to work out what he has already accomplished in Christ through salvation. Well, the last principle is, I think, just a summary statement about all of this. And that is that the complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are profoundly satisfying. They're profoundly satisfying. And as we've talked about these, these principles and as we really have put a fine point on it, I often find myself, I find my mind wandering to, you know, I try to imagine what this might sound like, you know, out in the world and how the vitriolic feedback I might receive for talking like this. But the truth of the matter is, is that anyone who has been in a marriage in which they are seeking to faithfully live out the roles that God's placed on them as husband and wife, recognizing that it has very little to do with what often is associated with people getting married at the, at the outset. It, it has very little to do with notions of emotion and romance and happily ever afters, but it has to do with God's transcendent purposes God's practical purpose for order, God's desire to demonstrate his relationship of Christ with the church through the context of marriage. I thought about this. I thought about the vows that, that we take. The reality is, is that when people stand at an altar and take vows of marriage, you know, it's the traditional vow is something like, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband and in sickness and in health and for better or for worse, and, of course, there's this, I do, I do, yes, I do. And, and there's the glow in the eyes, and there's the flowers, and there's all the things that typically accompany a traditional marriage. But the reality is, if you just look at the nature of marriage today in our culture generally, and if we were honest with ourselves, when we think about, those of us that are married, when we think about marital conflict that we've experienced in our own homes, the reality is, is that we should have said at the beginning, as long as I feel like it, I will. As long as you do your part, I do. Because that's ultimately what we find ourselves operating under. That's the vow that we can find ourselves operating under when we are not living out these roles and responsibilities that God's given us through his power, through his spirit, faithfully to the glory of God with the recognition that it's not about us. It's not about our individual gratification and happiness. It's a pursuit of sanctification. It's a pursuit of the glory of God. It's a pursuit of demonstrating reverence for Christ. But the fruit of that is contentment and deep satisfaction. It's not a pursuit of contentment and satisfaction in a selfish way. It's a result of faithfulness to the calling that God's placed on us in marriage. Well, certainly, we, we have to work this out daily, right? Certainly, those of us who are married uh, do not wake up every day 
on the right side of the bed, so to speak, when it comes to living out these roles and responsibilities. But we have this promise from God that as we do, we will honor him with our marriage. We will reflect the image of Christ in our marriage. And we will see God at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure in the context of our marriage relationships. So I pray that God will help us to have strong marriages, to be growing in strong marriages by living out the roles and responsibilities that God's given us with joy, out of reverence for Christ, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and for um, just the, the benediction that it is on our lives when we are seeking to be faithful to it and seeking to honor you and trust you by trusting your word. Father, I pray that you would um, help us to to um, to pursue uh, with conviction what you've called us to individually in the context of the marriage relationships that you've called us into. I pray that um, that this church in particular would be characterized by strong, godly, biblical marriages, that those who are younger, who are single, um, children who are observing their parents and observing other families, that we would all bear out a testimony of your goodness and your grace, and that we would manifest um, a redeemed vision of marriage, a, a vision of marriage and a fulfillment of the marriage call that was initiated at the beginning. So, Father, I pray for your help in that, and I pray for your grace in that for each one of us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys.